0: This is writer and game designer
1: Robin DeLaws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height.
0: And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin, talk about
1: stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pellgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Choice and the Gamer Brain. ZTE. Walrus Revenge. And 70s Elliptony. In Cursed Court, an amazing new board game from Atlas Games... You play minor nobles with limited resources. Oh, so limited. You bet your influence and hope that major figures do what you expect each year at court. Major figures like the king, queen, priestess, and assassin... I don't like the sound of that last one. Winner of the Major Fun Award, Father Geek Approved Seal, and the Dice Tower Seal of Excellence.
0: Citadel's designer Bruno Feudy says... He has not been as enthralled by a new game in years and calls it an unexpected
1: masterwork. Geek Dad calls it an excellent bidding and bluffing game. It's easy to learn, plays fairly quickly, and looks great on the table.
0: Check out the amazing art, great gameplay, and up-to-the-minute award list at atlas-games.com
1: slash court, Or see the link in the show notes. Or make haste to your friendly local game store. Before all those other lousy minor courtiers beat you to it. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. But which dice should we roll? And should we get Cool Ranch or Spicy Nacho or regular Doritos? Which miniatures do we get out? Do we get out our our bones miniatures? Do we get out our, our old pewter, Ralph Parthas? Who can say which which one of the... Uh Peter Frampton Records to replay. we're once again paralyzed by choice because once more we are talking about Sheena Iengar's The Art of Choosing: a book that has captured Robin's mind, uh or at least it has done until he chooses to do differently. But you have a question which is, given our love of tables and dice rolling and details, are us geeks, nerds, our tribe. Do we just are are we mutants? Do we like choices more than the normal people do than regular folk? What do you think, Robin?
0: Right. Well, in fact, uh this was a a uh you requested this segment uh because during our segment you you uh, wanted to come back to this whole issue. Um and so uh the book The Art of Choosing uh propounds that most people uh like to have uh, fewer choices than we normally think. And there's a famous study that suggests that people, you know, blank out uh, when you get past seven choices, and then later studies are sort of kind of moving back to, well, you know, it's seven actually is high, that people kind of start to tune out after four choices. But the book does propose that uh there are exceptions to that, and one of the main ones would be if you are looking for a very specific, uh, not just consumer good, but... Piece of art or something that you're super engaged with, like if you're a record collector, you do not want to go to a record store that has seven records. Right. Uh, you want to go to one that has 10,000 records and spend time, uh, going through that. And so the question is to what extent is a, uh, a tabletop game design, uh, when it offers choices to, uh, players, is it, uh, like picking toothpaste? Uh, at which point you know if you've ever been to a drugstore lately and trying to find the sub brand of your brand of toothpaste that's uh, you know well this one has a whitening and this one has the the sensitive and this has the whitening and the sensitive and it's a the, the process of buying toothpaste is now impossibly clouded by having too many sub choices so are we building those into our rule sets or are we building uh, something more akin to me a bookstore. Uh, going through a record store and <laughs> picking up uh you know spending hours looking for uh, a cool thing so uh can uh you originally sort of uh, thought that our people are different we are are making games for people who uh like detail and like choices so uh is that a defining trait of the gamer geek mind that they are uh, looking for more choices
1: i mean even even in 19 you know 74 i think that there was a a broader church than than one mind one even one subculture uh, because rapidly it was taken over by hippies in California, which could have been no, nothing like the good old hardworking Midwestern libertarians that invented the game. But the desire for choice, I think, is baked in to a, on some level, a desire if you're a do-it-yourselfer in anything. If you're a do-it-yourself furniture builder, you go to the good furniture store. If you're a do-it-yourself musician, you go to the good music store. If you're a do-it-yourself any kind of a thing, you are one of the people who wants to be upstream from the choice making. If you brood your own toothpaste, you would want lots of different sort of additives you could put in your toothpaste. You wouldn't want to just make the same four kinds of ingredients and turn it into toothpaste the way that everyone does. Um, So I think it's not necessarily that we are choice of files because we all could name every member of the Legion of Superheroes. I think we are all – choice of files because our hobby selects for people who want to build their own thing and wanting to build your own thing, you know, necessarily puts you upstream of the end product, right?
0: Right. And I would make the distinction as being, are you making choices in order to get to the activity or is the making of choices the activity? So when you are putting together your Warhammer army, you have, uh, not an infinite number of choices, but you have hours worth of choices and tinkering and, uh, okay, this guy's worth so many points and the cannon is this number of points and, oh, but, oh, how about this? And, you know, there are analogs to this and, you know, a deck building and a deck building game or at least one big chunk of our audience. Uh, character generation is that, but people do not always have uh, equal interests in things that they're doing in a role-playing game because role-playing games are so capacious that a the warhammer activity is uh you know it happens in stages but they're very you know it's like you like painting or maybe you don't or you like building your armies or maybe that's not your favorite part or you like the part where you actually put them on the table and they fight each other um whereas i think that with uh role playing that uh you can uh it's rare to me I think probably you know if, if you're at engineering school or uh, or what have you that uh, you know you might be able to find an all lawyer group or an all engineer group or an all computer programmer group who all equally love a very choice intensive character generation process where again you're tinkering with your character the way that you would tinker with a a warhammer army or a deck of magic cards I
1: had in retrospect a terrifying traveler group that was all accounting majors. <laughs>
0: And and if 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 ever there was a marriage of,
1: <laughs> well, of
0: vocation and e- game except
1: when the GM is a poor innocent cartography major who <laughs> can't handle your fancy foreign ways.
0: Right. So uh I, I take it they put up uh created a lot of uh three way trade routes.
1: Oh oh yeah, they they did currency arbitrage. <laughs> I had to start two interstellar wars to get out of accounting. <laughs> two, not just one.
0: Um, so the, the trick then is that there's so many sort of sub activities, uh, within role playing that, uh, and as a designer, you can't necessarily predict, obviously, if you create GURPS, you're going to attract GURPS fans, Mm -hmm. uh, if you're lucky enough to have fans as, as GURPS of course does.
1: But, but you're not necessarily even going to know what those fans look like when you're creating GURPS. I mean, I think that if you ask Steve Jackson, in the, you know, late 70s, early 80s, is he going to be making a game for people who argue endlessly about drivetrain ratios? He would have said, I'm making a game about gladiatorial combat, only you can be a pig. Um, He would not have necessarily thought that that's what Gerps fans would turn into, right?
0: Right, because there's, <laughs> there's a separate issue of how analytical game designers are, about who they're designing for and why, uh, <laughs> and because... The field is still very young. You know, people can be doing on instinct or they can create something that solves a problem they didn't think they were trying to solve, and that's the thing that gets in their audience. Um, I went... Uh, inadvertently made, uh, the folks at Palladium mad by suggesting that they did a great job of appealing to power gamers. <laughs> that was not their self-perception of what Rifts huh. was all
1: about. You, you'd think that a game with an actual stat called Mega Damage would have figured that out earlier.
0: Yes, it's like, <laughs> oh, I thought you were doing, I, I thought I was complimenting you by saying that the thing that you do, you do uh, brilliantly, but, uh, but no, that was not the perception of what was going on at all. So, uh, that's a, I guess yet another question for another hut is, you know, how uh, the difference between sort of intuitive design, that you're, you're just doing the thing that you love, and other people who love that thing uh, gravitate toward you, and therefore you never have to think of the issue of how many uh, choices am I imposing on people and whether it's the right number of choices, because just naturally people will be, if they find your thing at all, you will attract the people who are, are drawn to that. But then there's also the issue of uh you know which of course I've written down a lot the uh, divergences of taste uh within a group and that of course can even the same people uh over a period of time can change the amount of time that they have to devote to the activity uh that is in fact making a bunch of choices and that uh or how many people in the group think of you know a 3 hours or 4 hours of character generation as a fun thing in and of itself and How many people think of it as homework and if you're going to have a discussion? Or they may have thought
1: of it as fun once, but are like, oh, we die a lot in this character in this game for a a character generation project to take an entire session.
0: Yes, not not only uh is this uh game have a lot of decisions during character generation, but it's also somewhat on a hyper realistic scale as to how often you die in combat. That's <laughs> hmm, that's an interesting cop
1: This is why GURPS, uh, Call of Cthulhu, uh, although many, many GURPS fans are fans of the mythos, does not seem to be one of the most played uh, variants. Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, uh, if, if there's anyone you do not want to spend, uh, four hours detailing, uh, it's your, uh, neurasthenic, uh, philosophy professor who's, uh, who's going to faint to death as soon as he, uh, encounters a deep one. And I guess there's also another question to look at is, is the makeup of gamers and their desire to see uh, character generation or other in-game activities like you know managing your uh, magical library? Or because every so often I'll be uh, I'll talk to someone who's working on a new game. And I say, the thing that people really want is to be able to build stuff in the game, and they you know they want to build an empire, or they want to uh, build a new technology or a new way of doing magic, and and my question for that is really. Uh, cause there, there are people who have that sort of building impulse, but I don't know if you can get a whole group of them anymore now that Minecraft exists.
1: Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, interesting when you look at things like Minecraft and say, how many of our old, um, uh, fans liked that because there was no better way to do it. I mean, it's very reductive to say that the blow up in story gaming occurs simultaneously with. Uh, video games getting really good at letting you stab orcs, but I don't think it's an unconnected. I mean, certainly there's a correlation there. There's not necessarily a causation, but that as you can play Diablo or you can play a tabletop role-playing game has become a thing that now those sorts of games are drawing off some of the guys who would have, well, I don't really care about choices, but I do like stabbing stuff. And, again, even your Diablos and your other uh, descents and whatever else, they've all got choices that you make in the sense of you can, like, buy downloadable content, you can give your character special hair, and you can do all kinds of other things. And to some extent, there's choices in terms of uh, moving around in the game world is a choice, but it's not the same sort of shopping-intensive choice that, say, you do when you're kidding out a character, doing character generation, or building a ritual spell from scratch, for example.
0: Uh, right. And certainly there are still lots of people who want to s- stab, uh, fantasy creatures. Yes. Uh, but certainly with the success of, uh, D&D 5, what we're seeing is that there, uh, was an untapped group of people who wanted to do that faster and, and in a simpler way. And with, with their feet, friends. <laughs> uh, that all of the choices involved in, uh, creating a, a third edition or Pathfinder character, uh, super appeal to a large, uh, group of players, uh, but uh, after a certain point, it turns out there's also a whole bunch of other people out there who don't want to do that uh, homework, who want to get uh, straight to the stabby-stabby, and for whom uh, the the more detailed character generation is a series of taxing choices rather than uh, an exciting, fun activity uh, unto itself.
1: Now I, suppose- and I think that I think D and D has got sort of a uh, it certainly in five has got sort of a sweet spot. I mean, you're never going to make everyone happy. That's the that's just the lesson we live we learn in life over and over and over again. Um But D and D presents sort of it's it's like when you go there's a there's a, a sort of a subset of bookstores that I find when I go to them. And if you're in like a hipster part of town, sometimes you'll see it. And the bookstore will be an old repurposed. Um, I don't know, a, a fruit cannery or something and you'll, and you'll walk in and it's all bare walls and, um, uh, concrete furniture and stuff. And they, the books are all face out and not spine out. And so the stock is, you know, orders of magnitude smaller than a proper bookstore, but there's still an agreeable book shopping type experience in it. The Amazon bookstores are kind of like that a little bit. And so. You're, you know, you know, it's not like going to a real bookstore where there's a hundred thousand books and you could spend all day. But there's still a degree of I recognize the activity. Maybe I will pick the one thing that I like, and then I can move on with my life of artisanal kombucha and and not worry about it. And I think D and D's hit that really sweet spot where there's still some choicing, You're still picking your character. You're still picking, you know, your uh, your your class. you have still got some choices as you build your character. But it's down to that sort of manageable. Um uh, Sheena Iangar level, and I think maybe the question is not do you like or dislike you know how much is the right amount of choice It's that as you allude when with your Warhammer example, for some people, the choosing is just a hobby that's just a fun mental activity by itself, even though um uh as the d and d five example proves the mass audience yeah they they just want seven brands of toothpaste tops, and then they want to go on and have clean teeth for the rest of the day. They don't want to th- overthink it.
0: And the thing about uh, the analogs of going to a bookstore or a record store is that there is discovery inherent in that, right? That you right. Uh, don't know what you're going to find when you open the box. So if I was tasked for some reason, if the condition was make sure character generation takes several hours, uh, <laughs> first I would say, Really? Today? Really? In 2018? And then, yeah, we have this other, uh, you know, thing where, uh, you know, we're getting a, a, a grant from the, uh, Choice Foundation or whatever, um, <laughs> that, uh, okay, They're well, what I would then do to try and make a longer, more involved character generation appealing to more people is to have discoveries occur within that. So that, uh, you know, that when you pick your character class, then you discover something about your character, which you then interact with and modify. And then when you uh, choose uh, your uh, character, culture, or species, then you discover another thing. And so the uh, process itself, uh, which I guess, you know, it might be something that you would interact with even, you know, sort of as a, uh, perhaps a computer tool that you would go through and you know it'd it'd be basically like doing a series of BuzzFeed quizzes so that you would be surprised kind of by what you got at the end and then you could tinker with it, but you wouldn't necessarily know going in uh, what it was that you were going to come out with, and that that then makes that experience have emotional ups and downs uh rather than just uh you know messing around in a spreadsheet because when you're uh creating a, you know, your Warhammer armies, oh yeah, this piece will have this great combo with that, and that's a sort of a sense of discovery and reward within the process, so that those uh, hits of fun uh, occur more explicitly within the uh, the system. So, for example, you know, this hypothetical character generation system could then, you know, once you decide your, uh, you know, what all of your stats are and everything, the program would then check out what you've got and say, okay, well this is the free magic item you get, right? Here's your reward, here's your surprise, here's mm-hmm. the thing in the Cracker Jack box that you got. Uh and you can still trade that for a bunch of other stuff if you want to go on to another choice. But here's this fun surprise that you got. Or, you know, here's or it could generate, you know, well in that case, here's your uh your noble lineage or here's your connection to the Thieves Guild or it could give you uh plot hooks.
1: And that's and that's where sort of the life path system that you know, Traveler pioneered, uh, FASA's Star Trek Did It, We Did It in Star Trek um, comes in, is that you're playing that sort of mini game of, oh, look, I've discovered a new thing about me. Uh, the, sort of the ne plus ultra of that is the life board in which you literally play a board game to do character generation for the Swedish uh, role playing game Operation Fallen Reich. That may be a, a bridge too far, but it's like what you're talking about, an interactive computer experience. It's just, of course, in analog form because it's a board game. But that degree of, oh, because I did this, now I can do this, Um that's sort of a, a, a fun little process. I think Smallville had a similar thing where you had a life path and then depending on what you picked, that opened up new options for you.
0: Right. So I think uh, we have come to a conclusion, and the conclusion is that uh we as geeks do not necessarily – like more choices, but if the process of making choices is a geeky fun activity unto itself, that's the key.
1: Or if the core activity we're engaging in is building, um whether it's building in-game, really, or whether it's building the game, uh, the game world, as GMs do, that maybe having more choices is akin to going to a really good record store, as you suggest.
0: Uh, well, in that case, uh, let's make a choice of our own, and, uh, head out through this commercial to see, uh, what could possibly be on the other side. I think it's probably not a record store.
1: In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos
0: a government program named majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural a government program named delta green
1: tries to destroy the unnatural in the fall of delta green you play the agents of delta green caught between your oath to america and your duty to humanity Caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions.
0: Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the
1: award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction.
0: Delta Green falls in 1970.
1: The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pellgrain Press Store. It's Delta Green.
0: It's the 1960s. In gumshoe? What are you waiting for?
1: The end of the world?
0: That uh, persistent buzzing in your front pocket or perhaps in your purse or bag tell us that we've uh, entered a, a particularly surveilled installment of the Tradecraft Hut. And this is going to be a little awkward because you may be listening to this podcast using an app on your phone, but in order to get into the tradecraft hut, you have to surrender your phones, especially your Chinese-made phones, because we're going to look at the ZTE espionage connection. Uh, so uh, recently, the troubled, or perhaps until recently troubled, Chinese uh, telecom mammoth company called uh, ZTE uh, was, was in a spot of trouble Uh, In in a bit of distress, uh, for uh, one reason, the U.S. uh, Commerce Department uh, barred them from receiving crucial components they need to make smartphones uh, because they were breaking sanctions against Iran and North Korea. But Ken, uh, the current occupant of the White House, uh, decided to make good on his promise to uh, protect Chinese jobs and uh, says that something can be worked out with the Chinese government uh in order to get uh, ZTE back on its feet uh and at which point uh the uh, national security community all sort of kind of went, uh, uh, um so uh f the head of the FBI Chris Ray previously has said that uh, ZTE is a uh, security threat is an outlet of chinese government espionage but the specifics on that are a little thin on the ground so this is why we come to you expert in all matters about spying and geopolitics to uh uh, look through the, uh, the veil and tell us what's really going on. And it should be noted that the same concerns are, uh, raised about, uh, the, uh, Huawei, uh, smartphone company, uh, which is, uh, has a much bigger market presence in North America than ZTE does.
1: Right. The fun thing about this is that, um, again, I am one of those people who says, yes, almost certainly China has got backdoors into all the ZTE and Huawei equipment. That there is no such thing as a private company, especially in China. And if in the United States we know that Google and plenty of other tech companies have given the NSA backdoors. Imagine what could happen if the local version of the NSA could throw you in a gulag for 10 years. And imagine how many backdoors got opened by Huawei and ZTE. So even if Huawei and ZTE would rather not be spying, I guarantee you they are doing it. Now, the downside to my certainty is there is literally no proof of it. No one has found anything except for a third-party app. A third-party app company called Adups had included software that would send all of your text messages to a Chinese server every 72 hours, and, um, uh, They were supposed to be put into Chinese phones, not into American phones, but the way the app market works is some of them got onto American phones and people were like, Oh my God, I'm sending, why am I sending stuff to a Chinese server? And the answer is because you bought a Chinese app, you crazy person. But the actual only evidence of secret software piggybacking on Huawei is that the NSA did it um the NSA snuck a backdoor into the Huawei software and spied on Huawei uh, communications uh between uh Huawei and the Chinese army for years and years before it was uncovered so in some cases the NSA is like we know how bad your security is we penetrated it we know you must be giving it up to the Chinese government so there's no solid smoking gun proof except, I mean, one assumes there's solid smoking gun proof that they were dodging sanctions on Iran and North Korea, but welcome to everyone in China and most people in Western Europe. Um, So they're in good company there, but the part where they're spying on people is sort of, um, it's, it's the sort of thing, you know, happened, but you can't necessarily point uh, to a, to an exact piece of evidence. The Pentagon did finally stop selling ZTE and Huawei, uh, phones and modems in May of this year. So good work, Pentagon. Nice, nice job uh right. keeping America and, and safe. And as we record this, we're still in May of this year. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a um, uh, way to crack down. Again, this strikes me as the sort of thing, because if you look at the sort of, you know, blind, almost childlike faith that uh, the American security community has had in China for years and years and years, I mean, the the OPM hack is only the tip of the iceberg of what the Chinese uh a tech uh, uh espionage arms have been doing to penetrate american security the fact that the pentagon was ever allowing uh chinese modems to be sold on military bases is i mean that's the news right there not that you know um uh, the commerce department is trying to um uh do a, a basically a credit swap between uh chinese phones and american farmers but the the big news is, why was the Pentagon letting this happen for the last umpty-up years? I mean, since one assumes 2009. Right. Because that's when cell phones became a thing. For,
0: for about the same reasons that they were using, uh, Kaspersky antivirus. Yeah. Uh, that's another example of, uh, what in retrospect seems to be a, a curious sense of trust in uh, what are known to be, uh, rival command economies at the very least. <laughs> at the very least. Uh, another of the fears, uh, sort of, uh, hintingly raised by those national security experts who are saying anything is that there's also a concern that the having those phones uh on the cell system in uh in any country then allows uh, china to map that system uh can we then extrapolate from that what the advantage uh, would be of knowing of knowing the outlines of the uh the, the cell tower system in North America, for example.
1: I mean, I think that that's ba- the reason that you would want to map those from a military perspective is, is if you are planning a first strike on a country. You want to take out their cell towers as soon as you possibly can. You want to take out the load-bearing ones, if that's the metaphor. I have no idea how people talk about cell towers, but let's call it the load-bearing ones first. So as we saw when the uh, Russian little green men moved into the Crimea, the first thing they did was they knocked out all the cell towers so that no one in Crimea could call up the Ukrainian military and say, uh, we're being invaded, Jack. So that sort of an approach, if China wanted to go after, oh, I don't know, Taiwan or Malaysia or wherever – having that information becomes a useful military targeting system. I'm not sure how much information it does to know what our cell phone systems look like, because one assumes that if China is doing a first strike on North American mainland, they have bigger fish to fry than is our cell response going to be a thousand percent. And anything that they could do that would be targeted would have to be targeted to support such a wildly unlikely operation but I think it's more along the lines of, well, they can probably do something with it. We don't know what it shouldn't be nice. And uh for example, um, ZTE and Huawei were gonna supply equipment, not just cell phones, but physical uh, pieces of the new five G network in Australia. And so people were like, Do we want China to basically own the Australian comms network? Because have, in have some a kill cases, switch
0: where you can just turn it off in Beijing.
1: Yeah. Because in some cases, It could be not even so much a we're mapping the Australian cell network as we've got a backdoor into Australian cell communications. And that could be a big deal because obviously Australia is a core American uh, military ally and a relatively firm anti-Chinese strategic presence in the South Pacific. So the fact that China could possibly – tap into those communications is one problem, as well as, as you say, just, you know, turn a switch and suddenly Australia goes into an economic recession. Uh, That, I think, is the sort of thing that the Chinese have got to be thinking of as a doomsday uh, thing, as opposed to a thing we're going to do just to mess with, you know, the prime minister, Uh, because, you know, the thing is, you start a recession anywhere in the Pacific Rim, China is not the people who walk out of that hole. Um because uh as as the say goes, America gets a recession, China gets a revolution if the trade stops. So that's um uh I'm pretty sure the guys in Beijing, commies though they may be, recognize that.
0: So in Knights Black Agents, if your cell phone or if part of a cell phone network uh have a backdoor that uh goes to the vampire conspiracy uh, what does that uh, lead you to do
1: or to avoid doing? I think the first thing that you assume that the vampires have got is the same sort of thing that the NSA has. And one assumes the Chinese and other globally capable SIGINT uh, groups is that they have a series of red flags and automated system alerts. So if you're on the phone and you say, we found a nest of vampires, that'll get red flagged and go back to conspiracy headquarters. And they'll say, oh, we found some more guys who think they're woke vampire hunters. Go kill them. Uh, so you don't say vampires into your cell phone, you say code Vs, except that they can do a, you know, algorithm check and say, literally that, that bit is 25 years old, that you're not fooling a child with it. And then they send the same, uh, kill team after you. So the fact is that if they own your cell communications, they can do content analysis of them, either by simple red flags or by more sophisticated um, uh, uh, machine learning and, and algorithmic analysis or by divination. They're freaking vampires. They use magic and they can, um, uh, determine, uh, who, who on the cell network is you, is helping you out. And even if you are clever enough not to have, uh, compromised cell equipment, like you've only got, you know, the, the, the Google phone that you hand built yourself or whatever, and it goes through an, a random Gmail account every time you dial the guy you're talking to. May not be that bright and his company, unbeknownst to him, may have just got a Chinese contractor or a vampire connected contractor to put in their new phone system at the building. And so when he makes a call, his building transmits, Hey, I just heard from Steve. He said that there's vampires everywhere. What do you think? And they're like, aha, Steve knows about vampires. Let's go kill him. And that's how they do it. Right.
0: And you're bouncing off vampire owned towers. Right. Uh, with stingrays. Uh, and so, uh, what they can do then is just if they, uh, they can track, uh, the number of Google Maps hits that are, uh, within the air, uh, vicinity of their strategic locations, including their vampire nests. And then once a phone hits a critical number of those, uh, hits, your phone is then tagged as the phone of a potential vampire hunter. And, uh, in, uh, each, uh, each nest, uh, you know, next to everybody's coffin is an alarm that goes off when uh, anybody bearing such a phone comes uh, within a close enough distance so that they are uh, not surprisable if any of you have a uh, phone activity that tags you as as a vampire hunter.
1: Right, yeah, the, the notion of applying a digital tag and using the cell phone trackers to physically track you is uh, is yet another thing, Um. because obviously that's something that your phone does all the time whenever you say, where are the burritos, phone? Uh, Your phone is, like, not just telling you where the burritos are, it's telling the NSA and possibly the vampires where you are. And if if you coincidentally keep asking for burritos right around dawn near vampire uh, havens, they will notice that, I'll bet.
0: Right. And even when you pick up a new burner and, you know, if you put enough uh, contacts into it or enough identifying factors, that phone then registers as uh you know an heir to the original phone that was tagged and because it has uh, some
1: percentage of the same you know genetic material basically
0: yeah and so now where the threshold lies of course is is the trick for the uh, uh vampire uh information security officers because you don't want the alarms going off constantly uh you because then then no one gets any sleep yeah like a smoke detector with a dying battery the vampires will ignore it and so uh but you know once you uh do enough things that interact with the uh the data network that identify you as a vampire hunter again your new phone is also going to go informant on you and so you're going to have to make sure that uh you carefully ration the number of vampire related things that you that you do on the, on the data network and of course as soon as you hook up your phone to any of your internet accounts to google then that all uh, ties back to your original core identity and uh then they know who you are and, and what you're doing, uh, once again.
1: And in, uh, in game mechanical terms, you can a- apply a heat uh, penalty or you can add to their heat every time they use their phone to make a search for anything that might be vampire related. And remember, if they're searching mysterious series of deaths on the edge of town, the vampires know that's vampire related even before the players do. So you, you don't have like a, a period of, 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 oh, they figured us out. They may have figured you out before you figured them out because you don't know um uh, that this trucking company is a front, but when you research it, the vampires certainly do. And the vampires are like, that's the same guy that was looking for burritos around our haven. Let's eat him.
0: Uh, right. And of course, uh, when you are uh, installing a cell phone tower, that's a, a great opportunity for an agent to go in and get access to a, a building you wouldn't ordinarily get. And so that, mm-hmm. uh, if you realize that uh, the uh, vampires are infiltrating a local area's cell network, that can be a way to get at them As you wait uh for somebody to to show up from the company that uh you know, you know that this cell phone tower is a vampire stingray and it was installed by this particular contractor, so you follow that uh contractor's van around and wait uh till they uh stop off at the seven eleven and then you get in in the car and uh uh you or get in their van, I guess, and uh, and then you have some questions for them as to where they're going and that can be, you know, back tracing the physical part of that is how you can uh you know crack uh you know not just the the random uh, vampires who are out in their nests uh, uh using this alarm service uh, presumably they're uh paying something some sort of cur- currency in order to have that alarm protection and uh and you can work uh through that to find the uh the vampire infrastructure that is uh building uh, new apps into phones and uh, and also building the actual uh, network infrastructure.
1: And that's the other thing that you can do is every phone that becomes a tap has to send that data somewhere. So if you can follow that data and figure out physically where is the server that it sends it to, that gives you a hit on your map of vampire activity. And maybe the server in the Ukraine that it sends it to or the server in uh, Montenegro or wherever is actually just a... Crooked server that all kinds of bad stuff winds up on, but it's certainly, you know, collecting money from the vampires somehow, and that gives you another link in the chain. And if the whole server blows up, ah, that's too bad.
0: Right. And, uh, you know, they would never think to create a server that just exists in order to lure you there where their ghouls are.
1: That, no, that, 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 that the vampires bad. never, they play fair. That's what we like yep. about vampires. They're gentlemen of an older, of an older school.
0: Exactly. Much much older uh well on that note i think it's time to uh to turn our phones off completely and head on to see uh what lurks for us on the other side of this commercial
1: And who are the werewolves of Dacia? They are the descendants of the Other son, uh, Romulus' twin That sounds rita. fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately,
0: or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X.
1: Logically related, but related by their love of role playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name, and don't forget that's F E
0: N I X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English,
1: not Swedish. Choose to keep this podcast alive, just like Patreon backers: Wesley Griffin, Anton Kulakov, Miko Trung Trungboy, and Patrick Joint. We enter the hut, and we can't see anything. It's as though a cloth covers our eyes. We tug and we pull and our head pops out. We're in a t-shirt. We look down, and what the hell is that? We don't know, because we have not yet explored the t-shirt justification hut. Robin, you have found an image that, I agree, belongs on a t-shirt, and... (laughs) I'm, I'm not necessarily sure one of our t-shirts, but perhaps only our t-shirts can do it justice. Well, here's the rub, Ken. So I was looking for, uh,
0: public domain images in order to do another, a different shirt design. And I came across this particular, uh, uh, one and I thought, Oh my God, this is so amazing. We've got to put this on, on a shirt also, but typically on the show, we make shirts based on things we say actually on the show and we go backwards from there to find the shirt. But. Because this must be a shirt, hence the t-shirt justification hat. We will, if we talk about this, we will therefore be justified in creating, uh, the shirt, uh, which, uh, is going to be called Walrus Revenge.
1: Walrus Revenge.
0: Yes. The top, so the, on top of the image is the, are the words Walrus Revenge. Below the image are the words, it's coming. And in the middle is this glorious, uh, old uh, engraving style illustration that has to be revived and brought forward into the world of shirts uh, which gives us the opportunity then to explore the process of taking inspiration from a uh, really cool image and working from there to creating a, ser- a scenario uh, seed around that. Uh, so uh, Once again, this is Ken and Robin describe an image on radio uh, <laughs> but, but if you go to the site uh, you'll be able to uh, see it. So basically it is a, uh, uh, let's see, we have, uh, five explorer figures in the icy, uh, tundra and they are, uh, they are running, uh, from, uh, four different walruses, possibly five. There might be one tucked in the corner there. And the, the walruses mostly just kind of look like walruses. They look threatening sort of in their posture, particularly the ones surfacing from the water and in, in the front. But the the terror of the walrus is shown by the fleeing explorers. Uh, it's just so perfectly rendered in their body language in the illustration that it's just uh, a a lot of fun. And uh, you know, I put it through various filters and stuff to make it colorful and cool. But how are we Ken going to find a, a scenario to go with it in which uh, we know we want explorers? We know them. Uh, we want them to be in the Arctic uh, or possibly. Uh, some other location where there's, uh, ice and mountains. This doesn't have to be in our reality. We're not bound by the mere, mere shackles of, of reality, nor, uh, was this illustrator surely hanging around with walruses while they were threatening explorers. Uh, so, you know, those mountains may or may not be geographically accurate. Uh, so how do we start, uh, the process of figuring out how to, uh, make an adventure out of this, uh, conflict between, uh, man and walrus?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, the first thing is, I guess, I mean, we, we, we know that the period, when we look at the, at the, at the period of the dudes, they got mustaches and whatnot. So it's sort of the great age of Victorian getting into trouble, uh, that we're looking at here. It's the, it's the age of walrus annoyance. Exactly. Well, that's, that's an eternal age, apparently, <laughs> uh, uh, an age un, undreamt of, but the, but these guys look to me like they're sort of Victorian walrus annoyers who are running away. Yes. Um, and so that, to me, says that – and we've got that, that, that sort of looming crag in the background, like a bunch of looming crags. We've got a, a sort of a close crag and a faraway ice crag, and they're running across this sort of field of weird, monolithy looking glacier ice rocks. Um, so I think that – and they've got tri- a tripod or a brazier set up. I think maybe they were doing some sort of ritual. I think they were trying to summon something, uh, a la the Dan Simmons uh, novel, The Terror, except in this case, the Victorians are summoning it instead of just being eaten by it. And I think the walri- the walri- walruses are uh, the spirit of the Tupelac that is coming to get them. That's my theory, is that the Tupalak rather than being one giant walrus built by uh, an Angakok, the, the Tupelac is a, is a hive entity that is possessing all of these walruses and sending them after these dudes. What do you think?
0: Right. So uh, the question is, is this backstory, uh, do we as the player characters uh, get this image and the GM says, I know this looks like an engraving, but it's, a, it's in your world it's a photo, or are we the, uh, the explorers who have a mission uh, to go down and set up a tripod and, and run a ritual and uh this uh, the the walrus attack is one of the uh the problems uh that we face the obvious answer is yes of course we are the explorers but of course having it be a uh weird and enchanting image that uh, presages something that will happen to the player characters uh is also uh fun is it more interesting to sort of Tease you into it with a little document, a photo at the beginning as in the Call of Cthulhu, or do you want to dump the players in the middle of it and in media res and say, as you prepare the tripod in the uh, vast, craggy, frozen wastes, the walruses come.
1: Yeah. How do we want to go at that? Um, I, th- I think that this could be, it looks kind of flashbacky to me. This looks like what went wrong. You know, you, you heard, you, you hear the story and now you have to go get that tripod because it was full of magic goodies or, or you have to recover it to find out what these guys were up to. I mean, maybe they were, maybe they were bad. These mustached Victorian types pestering Wal-Rai, uh were bad. And so you have to go uh, find out what they were up to, but you, the the land is still full of angry tupalak right?
0: Right. So they're, uh they're Victorian explorers. So that means that we are in an Edwardian an uh, gentleman's club in London and mm-hmm. the sole survivor of the Dread Walrus incident is the one who hands us the, uh, the, the photo of the Dread encounter with the Tupalak and, uh, explains, uh, the folly of the initial, uh, exploration. Of course, this would be a, a famous exploratory, uh, mission that, uh, that failed. But of course, uh, he's revealing to us the real story of the failure. It's not, uh, you know, just one of those classic, you get to, uh, uh frozen wasteland and I run out of food and freeze to death but rather you were sent there uh by some uh shadowy force uh which the given the rule of uh sort of parsimony of information we don't want this character right at the beginning to be telling you everything about who sent them he knows as little as possible right. to get you into that so that you can go around and find more information so maybe
1: maybe the survivor is one of the natives who was brought in as a as a you know fetch and carry guy, and the Victorians, being racist jerks, didn't tell him anything, and he was like, I don't know, this looks kind of like Tupolak country that we're going into, but you know these you know, the, the pay's good, and then uh, they start their rituals like, oh yeah, this is definitely Tupolak country, and he starts sort of. Edging away. And so this is his view of what happened before he dived into the water or whatever and then and, and swam away or or fled back to the ship right. or, or got on the sledge and, you know, mushed up the dogs and, and got out of there. And so he had no idea what they were doing because they were, you know, uh white jerks. And um he's, uh you know, made his way to, to England to sort of find out because he's super curious about who would come there and wake up a Tupelak. That's bad news. Everyone knows that. And he's uh, asking around, and they're like, oh, you want to talk to the Society for Arctic Exploring PCs down at Edwardian Street? And he goes down and, and talks to them.
0: Uh, right. Or it could be that, again, you could sort of bring it into media res, and they, the player characters are arriving at his hunting lodge on uh, Baffin Island. And, of course, he's never told anyone about this. He doesn't want to tell anyone about this. And he figures, oh, no, these guys are also going to go off and annoy the walrus. I'm going to tell them as little as possible in order to, uh you know, sort of be the the figure at the beginning who says, oh, no, you, you don't want to go there, uh, but I can't tell you why. Trust me, don't go there. I tried to tell the other guy, oh, I've already told you too much. Yeah, uh, right. Uh, and yeah. then.
1: Uh, He's all like, maybe you'd like to go on the South Glacier. Lots of good fishing on the South Glacier. Really cool glacier. Best glacier. Uh, we were going to go to the West Glacier. I ah, wouldn't do it. Um, You know, not a cool glacier. Uncool. Yeah, uh, what's wrong with it? Oh, nothing. I mean, except for the Tupac incident. Oh, damn it. Right. Or maybe he's trying to lure them there to fix the problem. And he's like, hey, white guys caused it. Maybe white guys can fix it. And if not, well, the world's, you know, down a bunch of white guys. Fine. Right.
0: Uh So in in that version, he can have the, the tripod that you need or he can know where the tripod is. Right. Because you want Yeah he,
1: the- he took a he took a C sighting on it. Um, using, um, uh, a, a scrimshaw or little pieces of driftwood or whatever.
0: And he knows where the, the wreckage of the ship is and, and mm-hmm. so forth. So we're, uh, indeed getting closer to the terror and the discovery of the Hudson ship. And so, uh, we, uh, have that stage where you meet him and then, uh, you have to go and, and find the tripod. And, uh, I, I guess the, since they're expecting a walrus attack, uh, one of the rules of expeditious pacing is, if the audience is expecting something to happen, we'll be disappointed if it doesn't. Have it happen as soon as you can. Right. Because we don't want to have what we in the uh, narrative business call waiting for the walrus syndrome.
1: No, you can't have that. Right. That's, that's death so, to drama. That's why Shakespeare literally never puts a waiting for the walrus scene in any of his plays.
0: Exactly, right. And, uh, and Samuel Beckett at the last minute changed it to Godot. Um, right. So the walrus attack, which you're expecting at the site where you go to uh, for the ritual in fact happens slightly after you recover the tripod in a different location, because again, that strong narrative to uh, deliver the expected thing in an unexpected way. And then there has to be uh, something else waiting for you uh, once you successfully uh, flee uh, the walrus. And you may discover that uh, the act of fleeing the walrus sends you into uh, a a gate into a frozen waste that's part of a, another planet or another place, and therefore gives you another opportunity to uh, meet uh, people to talk to who you wouldn't necessarily expect to talk to. And so you uh, wind up on, uh, you know, if the Plateau of Lang is the thing that obviously comes to mind, but you might want some other version of that. So it's like, oh, wait a minute, what's this culture here? Why, why have these never been heard over and discovered? Just, oh, and they're like, oh, the walrus chased you, didn't they? Uh,
1: wow, well, yeah, that's uh, what happens. Well, now you're trapped here,
0: yeah, now you're trapped here, and it turns out that we have some uh some uh we don't have much of a walrus problem here per se, but we do have a uh four armed ape problem that we would like you to help us with, and then maybe we can help you get back to you know your wasteland after that, and uh there's something else that they that they give you. It's like, well, yeah, through our uh looking glass, we've seen uh, generations of people fail to defeat the the actual entity behind this. And, uh, you know, in reward now for having, uh, fought the, the four-armed apes, uh, because we're doing a crazy loopy pulpy sort of thing, uh, that, uh, you then, uh, will be able to, uh, you know, here's an amulet which you can take and then you can have your uh, final confrontation. So we need one more twist, I think, before we get to the final confrontation between the walrus controlling entity and, uh, that, uh, prevents the, uh, the terrible bad thing from happening and i guess uh, what we have missed so far is what exactly that what has pulled the players to uh confront the the source of walrus annoyance what is what are they looking for that they will find in this in this climactic
1: scene right is 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 it that one of those uh guys in the initial walrus attack was their mentor or their brother or something like that is there a personal connection is it that that guy was their hated rival and he stole their magic brazier and he took it off to do the ritual before they could. And they were just like, we wanted to summon the Tupelak. Oh, but maybe that was a bad idea. And they have to sort of face the fact that they didn't know what they thought that they knew. And this guy actually did them a solid by stealing their, their brazier. Or maybe there is some other sort of, um, uh, uh, not, not bragging rights because although that would be totally in period, but some other sort of an accomplishment that they all need to do to feel like whole as people to just not necessarily find the true north or uh, visit Hyperborea and help them fight off apes, but that they have some other reason that drew them up uh, above the line, as they used to say in Arctic exploration times. Uh, and those individual drives, uh, Solaris style, maybe show up as they are out there on the glaciers having their weird cold-induced hallucinations. And they have to sort of deal with the reason that they're up there in the first place before they can get back out. Sort of half-stalker, half-the-terror now.
0: Right. Um, if they're next generation of the the previous explorers, it could well be that there has been a uh, an obsession, a ghostly visitation, that you uh, see your uh, your father in, in your dreams at night, and you see that he's, uh, he's not dead after all. He's trapped. He's uh, being held uh, prisoner by these uh, strange beings. And uh, although it, it seems... Uh, beyond uh, the realm of, of rationality, you can tell, oh, oh, you know, there's something that tells me that, in fact, I can save uh, the father that I never really knew if I go there and uh, uh, confront whatever this entity is. And so that gives you a possibility of reward at the end. That gives you a personal motivation. It's a sympathetic thing, if indeed something that no one else but your intrepid friends believe and they don't really believe either they're just kind of humoring you and so that gives you a goal that keeps you moving toward dangers because you're, you're trying to uh free your father and it may turn out that the the walrus entity has a crew or at least the father still kept a, a prisoner or maybe you know yet another uh, strange group or another fold in reality that uh, you can go to but um uh so i think we've got everything here except the uh I think we need one more little obstacle or twist between the, uh, plateau from another realm and the walrus entity themselves. So you've got the, uh, you've got the tripod already. You've got the amulet that you weren't expecting that you thought you would need. And, uh, I guess the next thing is you need to find, uh, the actual location. And that could be the obstacles there could just be the physical exploration obstacles because, uh, you're not doing adventure that ex- uh, evokes the age of exploration unless there's some uh hardship and uh, this is obviously the Right unless you elite. have to
1: decide which of the party to eat
0: yes or or at least uh, uh you know the the when do we eat the dogs
1: uh, right part of yeah the, 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 the old when do we eat the dogs moment that everyone lives for um, The, the other uh, possibility of the, of the twist is that they go through this exploration and they come down off the glacier and something has changed about Greenland or Baffin Island. Something has changed about the world that they've come down into, that the auroras are flaring up and they've gone into uh, a different world than the one that they left. And maybe exploring the differences, how the world slipped, uh, possibly as a result of leaving that brazier up there underneath the uh, magnetic north. Possibly through some other reason and that sort of triggers, uh, them off and it all comes down to that big, um, uh, that, that big moment up on the ice that, that opened up this, this doorway that something came through, the Tupelac came through.
0: Right. that like you, you could use your false victory uh, trope for that. So right. they uh, come down, they conduct the ritual, they think they've succeeded and then they leave and go back to uh, the hunting lodge and it's completely different and they realize that they've got to go back because, uh, they did something, but it wasn't the thing they were
1: supposed to do. Yeah. And I can recommend uh, for people who want a prequel to our prequel, that they can look at the painting Arctic Adventure by Abraham Hondius, um, uh, which was painted circa 1677. I saw it in the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, and it struck me as a role-playing game scenario uh, par excellence. So uh, we're not going to go through and describe that and riff on that, but you can find that online. Um, uh, I recommend uh, hunting that down and sort of getting your creative juices going. At the very least, you know, uh, possibly a time gate at the very most. Something else uh, weird is going on up there in the Arctic. So you can either find
0: a new image of your own to follow a similar process to uh, riff uh, an unexpected uh, scenario from, or you can use the one that we've just applied. And, you know, if your players all survive, uh, you can give them all a lousy T-shirt. You can give them the Walrus Revenge T-shirt. That's right. And on that note of T-shirt justification... I think we can move to our next segment.
1: Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory.
0: Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors. Often at a shattering personal cost.
1: In Delta Green, the role-playing
0: game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space
1: and time. The Long Whispered of Slipcase Set is shipping in June. This stunning edition includes... Two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agents Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu mythos.
0: Terrible secrets of the intelligence world. and of eons pre-human.
1: Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and sourcebooks.
0: A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? If the hut we're entering is vague, you have a sense of what hut it is, but you really don't know for sure until you look at the window and see the alien big cat screaming out in the moors. Your eyes scan over the uh, corner where the gray alien and the Nordic alien are sipping kombucha and uh, uh, reviewing their uh, favorite moments in uh, peak television because we're once more in the Elliptony hut, the hut full of the paranormal and... uh, this is sort of a meta-Elliptony Hut, thanks to patron-backer Stacy Forsyth, who poses the following question, which is, why were the 70s a peak time for Elliptony? When something rises from uh, obscurity into the zeitgeist, uh, sometimes it is because of the zeitgeist, sometimes it is just because of... Uh, uh, the coincidental arrangement of, of different things. So was this a case of one publisher decided to uh take a flyer on Eric von Daniken and everything sprouted from that? Or uh was this something specific to the 1970s? Can I have my answer, but I'm throwing this segment to you. When you can start with your answer.
1: I mean, usually when I am posed with a cultural history question like this, I turn to the Marxist response. You talk about form factors and, and the effects on publishers. Uh, you talk about uh, the institutional and governmental effects on uh, television and film. And you can certainly argue that the paperback revolution begins in the 1960s. Uh, you, you get the first bunch of paperbacks in the 40s, but they're crummy. They're terribly bound. Um, you get an improved Binding technology begins to grow up in the 70s. as So this all comes down to glue. And this all comes down to glue. But what that means is you can start putting illustrations in paperback books. You can tip in plates the same way that you can in hardbacks. And so that means suddenly your books can contain pictures of grainy monsters and grainy UFOs and perfectly sharp pictures of archaeology that have nothing to do with aliens. And you can have Illustrations in a paperback, which provides you with a selling point for a paperback at the same time, because of the expansion of the American television system, suddenly you have a lot of networks with nothing to put on them. And so they need to look out and make hastily made documentaries about things. Uh, in Search Of being, of course, everyone's favorite, hosted by the level and talented Leonard Nimoy. But there was a zillion In Search Of knockoffs at the same time because going out and filming some woods while some guy talks about a UFO is dirt cheap in the same way that if you look at basic cable now, there's a million ghost hunting and ancient alien and cryptid shows because, again, you've got this vast wasteland of uh, programming that you have to put stuff into. And so I would say those two things drive a lot of what we're talking about, about the elliptony resurgence or peak, as Stacy asks, of the 70s. The other thing, however, I will say is that culturally, if you're looking for a time when the largest number of people will believe nonsense, the 1970s is a hard time to beat because you are still at the end of sort of that uh, generation of mass literacy, people who first, uh, first person in college in their lifetime type people who have gone up and explored all the new things that there is to learn and you know, if only 10% of the people uh turn out to be susceptible to elliptomy, that's a bigger 10% than any other 10%. You've also just come through the 1960s, in which the entire message is everything the orthodoxy tells you is a lie. Believe in the new, the wonderful, the personal, the cool, the hip, the happening. Lots of those things that the orthodoxy tells you are, there are no ancient astronauts. UFOs are just swamp gas. Uh, that's not a monster, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Orthodoxy happens to be right because it's a buzzkill, but in the 70s is the ideal time to sort of reap what the 60s have sown intellectually in the form of ridiculous nonsense like that. Uh, also the commune movement in the 60s burgeons in the 70s, uh, as it becomes corporatized, the things like the whole earth catalog sort of take off in the very late 60s, but are a phenomenon in the 70s. Similar catalogs for similar art alternative uh, uh, not lifestyles, but al- also lifestyles, but alternative belief systems flourish as the proto-internet of zines. Uh, again, the invention of the photocopier, probably a crucial technological invention in peak uh allows you to put together zines cheaply and and uh, send them around to a bunch of people. So you have the democratization of the hectograph machine. Lots of possibilities for ways to disseminate this information, and then catalogs to allow you to buy it, so that Someone can make a nickel on their crazy UFO, uh, zine, right?
0: Right. Uh, last week we talked about Gnosticism. Well, well, Gnosticism is also the Gnosticism of the seventies, but Elipany <laughs> is, is an alternate Gnosticism, right? That, uh, There, there's a
1: secret knowledge. There,
0: there's a secret knowledge. And if your world, uh, particularly if your world seems kind of crummy, uh, knowing that there's, uh, something else going on that, uh, that the so-called uh, smart people, the eggheads don't know. And, uh, uh, the fact that, You know, there are, uh, you know, the paperbacks are sort of your, your gateway experience that, uh, here's a mass market thing or your, your, uh, television documentaries, like you mentioned, which carry the, uh, patina of respectability because they're on a a major network and never mind the fact that they're not produced by the news division. Um, and so that can,
1: that sort of legitimizes a real publishing house, even if it's not the actual main editor.
0: Yes. Um, and so, uh, that's sort of a way, uh, you know, and some of these things are, are, you know, big bestsellers, right? Von Daniken, uh, had, uh, not just a, uh, a series of, uh, selling novels, but there were, uh, movies based on his work. And those also used an alternate distribution system. And I think it's, it's very interesting to look at, you know, the fact that there are new alternate ways of information dissemination that feed into this, Uh, first wave of sort of mainstream conspiracyism, so that there were all sorts of documentaries that would four-wall theaters. And so, uh, rather than under that business model, rather than trying to get your movie into the regular distribution system, you would just flat out rent a local uh, movie houses. Back in the day when a movie house was one building with one screen, often in, in a small town, which was its only movie house. And so you had uh, you know, I think the Chariots of the Gods movie, the original one was done that way. Definitely Late Great Planet Earth, which was mm-hmm. a, uh, what's the name? Christian
1: yeah. elliptomy. Yeah.
0: Um, and so that's, uh, you know, introducing sort of apocalyptic religious thought back in, which is, you know, scarcely new, but now has a new sort of vector and was not, uh, overtly in its commercials, uh, advertised as, as conveying that message. And so all of these, uh, as, uh, in this sort of first wave of alternate media that, uh, all of these ideas are able to get into the, the, the bloodstream. And, uh, and then of course for the really devoted, there are more and more rabbit holes to go down. So, you know, you're introduced to UFOs through, uh, a, you know, a Brad Steiger book or what have you. And then you go to the trouble of subscribing to the MUFON newsletter. And then you uh, enter this whole other, uh, a world of alternate information that uh, feeds your, Uh, sense of gnosis, whether it's about, uh, you know, who really laid out the Nazca lines or, uh, you know, is Bigfoot actually a psychic entity dwelling in the woods?
1: Yeah, Von Daniken has sold 63 million or 70 million copies of all of his books uh, worldwide. Now, at the time, he managed to sell 8 million copies, which was not a small uh, business then or now. Um, and in a much smaller population, and uh, the documentary that you alluded to was nominated for an Academy Award for best documentary. You can't get more fake real That's than that. That's unbelievable. That's crazy,
0: and and definitely still though there is a, a as we suggested earlier a social context in which those ideas, the desire to find the secret world beyond our crummy real world. The real world has gotten kind of crummy in the seventies, right? Mm-hmm. There's, uh, there's the energy crisis, there's a the recession, and prior to that, you know, the president of the United States turned out to be a crook, uh, which was, uh, um, a shock at the time. Yeah. Well,
1: I, I, broadly defined shock, sure, but it certainly left uh, major cultural ripples. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, Captain America quit for a while. Yeah. Which, and that was the first time he did that, not the ninth time. Yeah. So it meant something. That,
0: that was, uh, when it was a shock and not a, yeah. a, a, a trope. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, the idea that, you know, you're not being told the truth and there's this uh, bigger truth beyond what you're seeing, uh, definitely, uh, is kind of fertile. So did the focus on elliptony definitely didn't die out, right? That all the, the sort of Samus dot alternate uh, means of communicating things are certainly strong that the Art Bell radio show is a, a more recent iteration of that. And, and certainly here that was carried on, you know, a major talk radio, uh, the, uh, the station that used to carry that was called news radio and it was mostly news. And then at night it, it, it went turned loopy. into an art bell. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, they're still, you know, these theories haven't gone away, but they definitely receded. There's no, current equivalent of, uh, Von Daniken
1: or even, you know, Whitley Strieber or is there, I mean, Whitley Strieber and Von Daniken are still alive and writing books. So, you know, say what you want, but, but they're not blown up as cultural phenomena the way that they were, um, right now, I mean, you will, you can see some things like that, but I think, you know, sort of folk religion has been taking a lot of it over the, the, the five people you meet in heaven type stuff those are are chicken soup for the soul those kind of things are are giant and big and whether that's just because you know the um economic restabilization after the recessions have uh, created a more domestic version of popular superstition like in the Victorian times or whether everything got so terrible that people retreated into a, a Victorian neo uh, a neo-Victorian superstitious world i guess you could make either argument depending on on where you stand exactly but right. the um the 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 zeitgeist of the new age and of uh Elliptony in general seems to flourish when you have problems, but not real problems. So if you look, for example, at the X files, it is so quintessentially nineties that, Oh, we're worried the government might secretly be hiding a UFO. Uh, oh, let's chase them around. Let's have some fun. And then, after nine eleven and the Patriot Act and Gitmo and the Global Surveillance State and the War on Terror, it's like, oh, we hope the government is hiding UFOs. Frankly, that would be a relief from what the government is hiding. So the desire to believe something better about the world seems to, if not recede, at least mutate after genuine trauma occurs. And again, part of it may just be, as, as we sort of to begin this, this sort of Complete democratization of platforms. Now there's a million cable channels. There are certainly more Elitany TV shows on now than there were in the 70s in terms of numbers. Uh, maybe not in terms of viewership, but everyone who wants one can probably get their own UFO chasing show somewhere. Uh, there's, you can have your own UFO chasing blog or website. That's for sure. All the great Mufons and the other great organizations of the 70s came apart in the same way that, um, uh, people argue other, uh, social organizations came apart in the eighties and nineties under economic pressure as family sizes got smaller and as people's time began to get sucked up more and more with work and with other activities, then they didn't have the free time to go chase UFOs that they did in the seventies.
0: And, and certainly the, the appetite for conspiratorial gnosis has not gone away, but it's gone to the other side of the political spectrum to the authoritarian impulse where mm-hmm. the desire is to create a world that is darker than our real world in order to uh, justify a clampdown by an authoritarian uh, government that will protect, uh, the interests of, uh, you know, the, their supporters and, uh, and fight, uh, the people that they, uh, regard themselves as being, uh, besieged by. And so it's not about the, the thing that you're not being told is the fact that here's all these reasons to, to have a, to participate in this sort of new, uh, postmodern nationalist uh, authoritarianism.
1: The the thing about conspiracy theories is, is that they generally propagate amongst losers. And one of the unique things, uh, one hopes unique things about the 2016 election is that both sides can see themselves as the aggrieved loser of that electoral contest, uh, usually in, in the form of why doesn't he resign? Why doesn't she go away? But it's a very similar sort of response across the aisle. And so. The conspiratorial quotient, I guess, of elliptony seems to be increasing because we just have double the losers. I mean, the, the in the 70s, the conspiracy theorists, straight-up conspiracy theorists, were by and large people who were feeling left out of... The new generation and were sort of cranky right wingers of one or another stripe, even if they were back to the land agrarian rightists on the edge of the new age. And so that's why a faultlessly, uh, left counterculture type like, uh, Robert Anton Wilson can make fun of them in the Illuminatus trilogy. Cause he's not really picking on his own side except for hippies who everyone can pick on because again, hippies don't have a, a coherent political policy and it's certainly not of the left in the way that you're supposed to be, uh, in the 1970s, but as that. Wheel turned in the 80s and 90s, you saw conspiracy theories, um, going the other way about the secret government and this, that and the other thing. Right. And so now in the 20 teens, we maybe, uh, it's part of that, you know, um, uh, uh, a thousand flowers bloom. So no flower looks particularly bright, but because we've got this sort of morass, as you say, of, of competing authoritarian conspiracy, conspiracists, um, we don't have a single overarching narrative like we did back when the Illuminati was good fun for everyone to make fun of.
0: Right. And if you are weaponizing conspiracy theory as a political instrument, uh, whether that is to get elected or just to uh, try not to be
1: impeached or to shill gullible rubes out of their money, which is the old way. Yeah. Uh,
0: your motivation is to make the conspiracy outwardly credible. So, uh, you know, we're credible, you know, there's heavy scare run on that, but it doesn't involve cattle mutilations or ancient astronauts right. or uh, you know your magical thinking is not revealed as being overtly magical, but appears uh, to have an you know all you're doing to change reality is you're adding a basement to a pizza parlor
1: and right uh, you're or you're just arguing it. about you know which FBI agent is on whose side
0: right that sort of uh, you know that's conspiracy c- corner, but it's no longer uh, sadly the the hut right and so. Uh, I guess we're going to have to wait for uh, social conditions to change because I don't think we're going to put the genie back in the bottle in terms of communication streams being super distributed. But something is going Mm -hmm. to have to happen in the Zeitgeist to have a luxury of thinking that the uh, coolest reality that could be hiding behind our our mundane reality is uh, flying saucers or or Bigfoots. Right. Uh, Well, I guess uh, that sounds like a concluding
1: note, wouldn't you say? That sounded like a sum up to me.
0: Yeah. Well, in that case, uh, let's get the uh, heck out of this uh, here podcast, but we'll be back uh, in another week uh, with more nonsense and excitement. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software.
1: Music, as always, is by James Semple.
0: Audio editing by Rob Borges.
1: Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin.
0: Sport your finest bell-bottoms alongside Patreon backers exactly like... Adam Grotjan. Ryan Lasseter. Chris McLaren. Rich Hour, And Aaron Saff stag ken and robin apparel and other area merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash ken robin
1: the walrus revenge shirt is now available
0: on twitter he's at kenneth height and he's at robin d laws see you next time when once again we will talk about stuff